0: If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Amos. Um, if you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one, there are Bibles in these black chair pockets and at the ends of the side aisles at the back. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep, to keep that one. We're turning to the book of Amos. Amos is towards the end of the Old Testament. It's one of what we call the minor prophets because they're shorter. So after the big ones, after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, minor prophets, returning to Amos. If you have one of these, these paperback Bibles from the chair pockets, this will be on page 651. Amos chapter five, beginning in verse one. Please follow along as I read, and this should be on the screen behind me as well. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel." Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation, and in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. We pray with me? Our Father, I I tremble a little bit even just reading that again, um, and so we remember that as we come to Your Word, we come we come to the voice of One who loves us. We come to the voice of One who who is intimately acquainted with us and who uh, is intimately involved in the details of our life. We come to One who um, who has sent His Son for us, and so we we come. To hear from you, we come to draw near to you. Father, we ask that you, our good Father, would speak to us through this passage this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, a week ago, was the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., who um, many of you will know was a, a key leader in the movement in the United States for black Americans to experience in practice, not just on paper, equal rights to white Americans. And he, he did it because for him it was a matter of justice. He believed that there was a standard of just and unjust, of right and wrong that transcended law, that transcended culture, that, uh, that was universal because it was determined by God. And Dr. King dealt with this idea of justice in two of his most famous papers, a speech he delivered at the 1963 March on Washington, um, which which has become, become famously known as his I Have a Dream speech, so that's one, and in a letter he wrote to some white ministers who were critical of his methods called Letter from Birmingham Jail. And I want to read excerpts from each of these, and I want you to see if you can spot a link Between the two. So, first from his I Have a Dream speech, he said, There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating, For whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote, and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters, and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now this is from his letter from Birmingham jail, defending himself against people who called his, his methods extreme, He said, but though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you hear it? In his two most famous writings, Dr. King quoted the same passage from the prophet Amos. Let justice roll down like waters. When Dr. King thought through the scriptures, when he searched for a voice that demanded justice as insistently as his own, he found and sought it in the prophet Amos. And so it's Amos to whom we're going to be turning our attention this morning. We're going each week in this sermon series called Interventions, we're looking each week at one of the writing prophets of Scripture. And today we're going to hear Amos' message. So Amos lived almost eight centuries before Jesus. And he lived at a time when the people of Israel had split into two kingdoms, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And Amos was from Judah, but God called him and sent him to Israel to, to cry out to them, to draw them back to himself. And it was, a, it was like a banner year for Israel. It was a time of incredible prosperity. They had peace from their enemies. Their crops were coming in. The standard of living for the, the rich class was going up and up and up. And they thought it was like a golden age under God's blessing. And it's, it's easy to think that, isn't it? You think, my family's doing well. Uh, things are looking good for promotion at work. My investments are going up. I'm going to church consistently. God must be pleased with me, right? My, my life is so good. I must be doing something right. And Amos arrived to tell them and to tell us that how God really assesses our lives is very different. As we'll see, his assessment is based on the degree to which our lives reflect the reality of his justice. So to get it at the heart of God's message for us in Amos chapter 5, we need to see three things in the passage. We need to see a lamentation, an accusation, and an invitation. And there's an outline on the back of your bulletin if it helps you to follow along. So first, a lamentation. Amos says that judgment is coming. He tells them what, what this speech is about in verse 1. He says, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. So this is a lamentation, it's a funeral song. So you, you have to imagine these people, I mean, like they're just, they're going like gangbusters, right? They've got so much money, they've got so much crops, they feel like everything is coming up just the way we want it to, Israel is the best. And then Amos arrives on the scene and says, actually, I've come to tell you of the death of Israel. I've come to tell you that that this nation that you think is doing so great, it's as good as dead because of what is coming. He says in verse 2 that it will be fallen no more to rise. So Israel will fall and it, it will never come back. It will never be what it was. It will not rise. He says, that in the same verse, it says, it will be forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. No one is going to come to her help, not even God. He says, he picks this up again, well, in verse 3, he says, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. That which went out a hundred shall have ten left. He says, says, imagine the cities of Israel emptying to go to battle, to defend the nation, and only only one in ten is going to come home. It's going to be a route, you're going to be destroyed, right? He picks it up again in verses 16 and 17. He says, in all the squares there shall be wailing. In verse 17, in all the vineyards there shall be wailing. What is, what is this awful event that Amos can see coming that they can't see? He tells us in verse 5, he says, but do not seek Bethel, do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile. What's coming, this judgment that's coming is exile. The people will be conquered and taken out of their land, taken from their homes, and Israel will never be a nation again. So to rewind a little bit, after God brought his people out of Egypt, after he rescued them from slavery, he brought them out to Mount Sinai. Remember Moses and the Ten Commandments, he made a covenant with them A covenant is it's the solemn agreement that defines the relationship between God and his people. And they both had a part to play in this covenant. God had this part to play. God said, I have rescued you by grace. Not because you were good, not because you sought me so much, not because, you know, I saw something in you that I just had to have. I rescued you by grace because I loved you. I saw you, you were helpless, you were enslaved, you were miserable, I loved you, I came and I brought you out by my power. I have rescued you by grace. And he said, and now there's a way that you need to respond to me. I'm giving you this beautiful land to enter, and you need to respond to me by living distinctive lives, living holy lives, living lives that stand out from every other nation because they reflect my character. And he said that if they didn't keep their end, if they didn't live his way, he said in Deuteronomy 28, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. Exile. Plucked out of their land, scattered among the peoples. And Amos says, This is coming. So why? Why would God treat his people this way? What have they done? We've seen his lamentation. Now we need to see an accusation. And this is the heart of what God sees in the people. God's people have chosen wealth over justice. So in verse 7, Amos addresses the people as, "O you who turn justice to wormwood. So wormwood is like a bitter herb, right? He said, you've turned justice bitter. You should have this sweet way of living, this sweet way of treating one another, and you've made it bitter. He says, you've cast down righteousness to the earth. Now we'll see how they're doing it in a minute, but, but we need to talk about what the Bible means when it talks about justice. When justice is being done, everyone is getting what is rightfully theirs. So when people have broken the law, when they've hurt other people, they get the just punishment for what they've done. They don't kind of get like a lighter sentence because they come from the right family, because they have more money, because they're a man rather than a woman. Everybody gets exactly what they deserve, no more and no less. But it's more than just how punishments were decided. When, when justice is being done, everyone is getting their rights. And, and the Bible talks again and again about the rights of the poor, The rights of the vulnerable, the rights of those who don't have enough. Because everyone is entitled to certain care, to certain rights, to certain treatment, just by being made in the image of God. Not because of what they have, but because of who they are. So when justice is being done, when God's people are a just community, those who are particularly vulnerable, like widows and orphans and immigrants and single moms and the elderly, the poor, those people are being especially cared for. They're being protected and provided for because they have rights, because they're made in the image of God. In Deuteronomy 15, God says that if someone, if someone among his people becomes poor, that, that those who have something to give should lend to him, should, should not harden their hearts, he says, but lend to them, and don't even demand to be paid back. Don't even expect anything in return. You do it because it's Right? You do it because it's, it's justice. So it's not that in Israel everyone should have the same. There's always going to be people with more, people with less, but everybody has enough. Does that make sense? Those who have more than they need are able to share with those who don't, so everyone has enough. Everyone gets cared for. No one gets forgotten. It's a sweet way to live. But, but Amos says that they have turned that sweet justice to wormwood, to bitterness. And this is how they've done it. He he tells us in verses 10 to 13. And the the key phrase that you'll hear as we look at this is, in the gate. Okay, in verse 10 he says, they hate him who reproves in the gate. In verse 12 he says, you afflict the righteous, you take a bribe, and you turn aside the needy in the gate. And so here's what's going on there. So Israel didn't have a court system like we do, right? They didn't have a needs assessment unit. They didn't have the NWDA. What they had was elders. They had like the the leading men, um, the leaders of families, and they would sit in the gate. And if you had a need, if you had a complaint, you would bring it to the gate, and you would say, "Um, I'm working for this guy. He owns the land. I'm just farming for him, but he is not paying me what he said that he would, I'm not being taken care of. And then he would come to them for justice, and then the elders would make it happen. They would say, well, we can take care of that. Let's get that guy in here. Let's talk it through. We're going to make this right. Okay, so the gate was like the court. It was where people got justice. And Amos says that's what's actually happening is that in the gate, the needy are being turned away. They're being turned aside. He says that, that his people are afflicting the righteous, taking a bribe. So someone comes and they say, this guy is not doing right by me. And the guy who's accused says, here, this will take care of that. And they said, oh, I think you're in the right here. I think everything's on the up and up. Sorry. And they turn aside the needy and the gate. It talks about how they, they are, uh, in verse 10 he says, or verse 11, you trample on the poor and you act exact taxes of grain for him. So, the, so these people are already poor and these people who have more than they need are, are taking more and more from the poor. So those who have the ability to help the poor are actually enriching themselves at the expense of the poor. Do you guys see that's happening? And that is the accusation. In, in verse 11, Amos says that they have built houses of hewn stone and they have planted pleasant vineyards. So they're, they're building these palatial estates with their own vineyards. They're, they're taking it easy. They're living the high life. Meanwhile, the people they're supposed to help are going away Without justice. And this is a problem because God says again and again that the poor have a defender. Deuteronomy 10 says that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. God is the defender of the poor. And Amos says that in Israel, the poor have been trampled and taxed and turned away in the gate. And 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 God describes himself, this this may explain why something that kind of comes out of nowhere, how it fits. Look at verses eight and nine and see how God describes himself. He says, He who made the Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night, and calls for the waters of the sea, and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. God's making the point there. I'm the defender of the poor, and I have unlimited power. I I made the stars. I put them in place. I turn the earth to make a day follow night. I rule the sea. I rule the storms. There is no escape from me. He says that destruction comes upon the fortress. You might try to run into the strongest place you have, but destruction comes upon the fortress because there's no escape from the justice of God. Now, wait. Now, wait. You might be thinking, now, wait. Because that got pretty heavy pretty fast. I thought that God was a God of love. I thought He was our Heavenly Father. So, how could it be that God would treat His people this way? And what we need to see is that God's justice is part of His love. So, I have two sons. And if you have brothers or you have sons, you know that boys fight. All the time. And some of their fighting is for fun, and some of their fighting is not for fun. Right? And if I, as their father, so this happens 10 times a day, if I see one of my sons pushing his brother off the couch onto the tile floor, or if I see him hit his brother in the face with a hard plastic bath toy, or if I see him using his superior speed and height to keep his brother's blankets away from him, and I didn't intervene... Would that be love? Or would that be indifference? Because I love my sons, I get in the midst of there because I don't want my one son, I don't want him to get trampled on. I don't want him to get his rights taken away, and I don't want my other son to become the kind of person who uses his power against people. And so I get involved because I love them. God is committed to justice because of his love because he loves the poor as much as he loves the rich, and he wants them to flourish every bit as much. And he has warned his people over and over and over that they must deal justly, and now he's going to get their attention dramatically. Now, I know we all get nervous when the pastor talks about money, but this is God's word, and it's good for us, so let's, let's press it just a little bit. We may not stand in the place of these town elders. We may not uh, be empowered to decide cases for the, the poor, to take bribes and turn them away. At least I, I, hope, I hope we're not doing that. But I want to suggest some questions to ask yourself to see whether you're pursuing the kind of just community God calls his people to be. And the first one is, do you build margin into your life for the sake of others? So in that covenant I told you about, the law that God gave his people, he made this provision, he said, if you own land, if you raise crops, don't harvest all the way to the edges. Leave some grain on the edges for the poor. So they don't own land, they don't have any other way, but they can come and glean grain and they can have something to eat. So in effect, he says, part of what you own belongs to the poor. And if you harvest your whole crop, if you, if you, take, if you pick it clean, you're robbing them because some of it, it's all from me, and I want some of it to be for them. Now, I know that almost nobody considers themselves well-off, right? Because we can always think of something we wish we could buy, and we can't. We can always think of someone who has more than we do. But, not all of us, but I think most of us have, after we've met our basic needs, we have a little bit left over. And so the question is, do you, do you make margin? The way God calls his people to make margin, is there margin in your budget for those who don't have enough? Do you have some to give or do you, do you spend all that you make on yourself? And it's not just money that's needed, right? Do you make margin in your time? Do you have time in your schedule for the single parent in your community group to do home repairs for those who can't afford to have it done, to, to take kids places where they need to go? To, to just be with your friend you know is lonely? Is there margin in your time for those who need what you have? Another way to say it is, if you're honest with yourself, is your ambition, is what drives you, is, it, is your daydream, is it wrapped up in your own prosperity and your own security to make and save all that you can for the certain house, the car, the vacation, the retirement? Is, is that what you dream about or is your ambition to, to make all that you can for the sake of a just community so everyone has enough? This church is a family. And, and if you're just here, it doesn't feel like it yet, but, but this church is a family. This is the first place we need to do justice. And so I, here's a test, right? When you hear about needs in this body, where does your heart lean do you, do you immediately begin to think of, of reasons it wouldn't work for you to help? Or do you immediately begin thinking of ways you could make it work? I mean, when, when I announced about Children's Heart Project, which way did you lean? Did you think, oh, I want to get in on that, or that doesn't, that doesn't sound like me? Which, which way do you lean? And God hasn't just called us to love one another. He's called us to love our neighbors as ourselves, which means not just doing justice here, but doing justice in our neighborhoods, doing justice in this nation. And so, it's worth asking yourself honestly, am I seeking to understand where injustice is present in Cayman? And this isn't an easy task. So we, This is a diverse church, right? Not everyone here is going to see eye to eye on where the problems are. We're not all going to see eye to eye on who has the power and who is vulnerable and who needs to be... Helped and protected, right? Depending on where you whether you grew up here or you came here later or you just got here, depending on what your household income is, depending on whether your kids are with you or you're working here alone and sending the money back to them. Depending on whether you're a man or a woman, you you might perceive this country and, and what needs to be done here very differently. And and some of you feel like you're in the minority in this church, and you're not even sure whether what you see and whether what you have to say is welcome. So the temptation for you is just not to say anything, just go to church, go to small group, keep your thoughts to yourself, don't make waves. And what we need to see is our diversity can be an incredible strength if we have the humility to learn from one another. So if you've been in Cayman for a while, you might know what I mean when I say there's a lot of fear here, okay? Some expats feel very vulnerable because they feel like their life here and their job could be taken from them in just a minute. If the laws change, if um, their work permit isn't approved, if PR doesn't go through, they feel vulnerable and they feel afraid. And and many Caymanians feel afraid because this country is changing. It is changing, and they're fearful for what is getting lost and for who is getting left behind. And we have an opportunity as a church to be a place where people can look each other in the eye as family, and ask questions, begin to understand what it's like for the others. We can ask, what's, what's it like for you? What are you afraid of? What, how do you feel misunderstood? What, what do you see that I don't? You can just go out to lunch. You can go out to lunch today, after church, and begin to ask and listen, not assume that you know what the other person is experiencing or feeling. And then after we begin to understand, we can begin to do something about where injustice exists. And I know that some of you are here for a limited time. Some of you know you're just here for 18 months, right? You're just here for 15 months. And the temptation for you is to think, is to sort of treat K-Man like a rented apartment. And to see things and think, that's not how it should be, but I don't own it. And that can be somebody else's problem. And what I want you to see is that wherever you are is the place where God is calling you to do justice. Wherever you are is the place where God is calling you to get involved and show his justice, reveal who he is to people. You can't do everything, right? But if we get together, if we learn from one another, we can do something, so there's there's a current in Cain man. I know you feel it. That'll just you could just you could just get swept away seeking a nicer house, a nicer car, a nicer vacation. But let's not let's not be the people who choose wealth over justice. So we've seen a lamentation. We've looked at length at an accusation. Now, lest we become disheartened, we'll see briefly. An invitation, And this, this is just amazing because we've seen how just this God is, that he would send his own people into exile because they have not cared for the poor. He told them that judgment is coming because they'd exploited the poor, but that exile is sure. But in this passage, three times, he still says that there's hope for them. He holds that hope. He hasn't written them off. He has to bring judgment, but he wants them to live. So look at verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. And verse 14. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. These people who have turned from him, who have turned justice to wormwood, who have trampled on the poor, God says, there's hope for you. And if there's hope for them, then there's hope for us. God instill, he still invites them to seek him, to find their life in him. So what does it mean to seek the Lord? These people that Amos was talking to, they thought they knew, and so he has to immediately adjust their thinking. If you look at verse 5, he says, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. So you might think that in a time with all this money, in a time with all this prosperity, the people might have become very irreligious. They might have sort of given up on worship, given up on sacrifices, just sort of been consumed with themselves, and actually the opposite is true. With all that money, they became kind of extravagantly religious, and so they would go on pilgrimages to these holy sites, these places that were associated with kind of the heroes of faith. They would go to Bethel where Jacob saw the stairway to heaven in a vision. And they would go to Gilgal where the people of Israel crossed into the promised land for the first time. And they would go to Beersheba all the way in the south of Judah. They'd go all the way to the south because that's where God appeared to Isaac and to Jacob. And they would go to these holy sites and they would sacrifice. They would think, they would say, Look at how religious we are. Look, we've come all the way here just to sacrifice. Look how much we love God. Look how much we seek him. God must be so impressed by all the things we're doing for him. And all the while, they're exploiting the poor. They're neglecting what God said they have to do. So God says, seek me, but don't seek me like that. Don't seek me like you have to go somewhere special and make a sacrifice. Seek me by doing what I've called you To do. Don't seek your own image of me. Don't seek an image of me that's impressed with pilgrimages and sacrifices by your church attendance and your giving and your mission trip and your serving on a ministry team. Don't seek me like that. Seek the real me. Seek the me who cares what your life is like. Seek me and live. Do you know how to tell if you're truly seeking God? Your life changes. Because the other side of seek God, the passage says, is seek good. Verse 14 seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. So if you're seeking God as he is, not how we want to think of him, not as someone sort of easily impressed by, by little religious activities, but if we seek God as he truly is, we'll seek him on his terms will treasure his word and obey it, we will love the things that he loves, like everyone made in his image, like justice. We, we, won't, uh, we won't try to impress him with the things we do. If you seek God and nothing changes, so if, you, if the God you seek never disagrees with you, then you're seeking a God you've made up. Because the real God cares about the justice of of our lives. You can't seek life in God without also seeking life for others, life for the poor, and life for the vulnerable. God says, don't seek me like that, but seek me. Look to me. Call out to me. Listen to me, and you'll live. I'll be with you. I'll be gracious to you. The exile won't be the end for you. I will bring you through. You'll live. And God offers himself to us This morning as well. So maybe you've been seeking an image of God that's impressed by the religious things that you do. Maybe you're aware that the way you think about your money, the way you think about what God has given to you, does not reflect His justice. You have not been making margin, you've not been doing justice. God is gracious, He is loving and kind. And he says to us, it's not too late. Seek me and live. But that raises a question. And the question it raises is, how do we know when we've sought God enough? How do we know when we've sought good enough? How do we know that we've done what he says we need to do in order to have the life he offers? And here's where things get so sweet because this is the message of the gospel. God has done what we could not so god for all of history has been calling people to seek him he's been calling people to live in a way that's just and good and and no one's ever done it everyone has always fallen short and so god himself became a man jesus christ and he lived the life we should have lived he he perfectly sought god and he perfectly sought good and he perfectly did justice and at the end of his life when he should have claimed the prize. He could have said, you said seek me and live, and I did, now give me the eternal life that I have, that I've earned, that I deserve. Instead, at the end of his life, he chose death. He chose the ultimate exile, not just getting taken away from his home, but being cast away from God. On the cross, Jesus was, he was cast away from his heavenly father. He was cast away from life. He was, Cast into utter darkness. He suffered the punishment we deserve, so that we could have what he deserves. He suffered the exile, so we could have his life. So we could have the life that God offers. And so now, when we hear God say, "Seek me and live," we—it's it's sweeter and deeper and richer than even Amos could have imagined. Because he's not saying, "Get better, and then you'll get life." He's saying. Come to me empty and receive my grace. Come to me acknowledging that you have not done this right and I will give you life because I love you and I'm gracious and Jesus has done what you could not. And if you respond to him, maybe this morning you need to respond to him for the first time. You need to acknowledge to God, I have not lived the life you want me to live. I have not sought you first. I've sought money. I've sought a career I've sought what I thought would make me satisfied. I have not sought justice. I have not done what you call me to do. And I, I, if, if life is going to come to me, it's got to come as a gift because I can never do enough to earn it. And if you come to him like that this morning, he will give you life. And it's not just that he'll give you eternal life. He will change your life now because his Holy Spirit will come into your life and he'll begin to change you from the inside out to make you the kind of loving and just person he has always called you to be, that you could never be on your own. You will love those who have nothing to offer you in return because you know that God loved you when you had nothing to offer him. So, Amos' good news is that God intervenes to call us to seek new life in him And to seek a just life for others. And if we do that this morning, God is calling to us. He is calling us to respond to His love. And if we do that, think about what kind of community this church will become. Imagine imagine what it would be like for everyone here to get all the care that they need, that no one feels like an outsider because they don't have what everyone else has. Imagine, Imagine what it would be like for all of us to be free from the allure of wealth and luxury, which is so pervasive in Cayman, to just rejoice that we have enough for everyone. Imagine, imagine how striking our love for our neighbors will be when they know that many of us are not going to be here in five years. We're not, we're not doing this because we want Cayman to be nice for our kids. We're doing it because they're our neighbors and we love them. Think how much attention that will draw to God and his justice and his grace. Will you pray with me that God will do that? Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you. We praise you that, that everything that you expect of us, everything you demand of us, you have done yourself through Jesus. You have called us to be just and we have not. You have called us to love you and we have not. You have called us to love our neighbors and we have not. But Jesus has. And he suffered in our place so that we could be forgiven and we could have his life And we pray that you would send your spirit, that you would change us, that you would forgive us and change us, that you would transform us so we become people like Jesus, so we become the kind of people that seek the good of others rather than the good of ourselves. Father, we don't want to just go out from here and have lunch and forget your word. We want to be changed. And so come, even as we're singing, come and work and make us who you want us to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.